You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Your Bible's open to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. The Gospel of John, chapter 5. We will look this morning at verses 30 through 35. Sorry, verse 31 through 35. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Let's pray together. Our Father, very simply we ask that you would feed us today from your word, that you who have redeemed our soul would feed our souls now on the bread of truth. We know that in the pages of this book you have spoken to us once and for all, and we as a people submit ourselves and yield ourselves to that, and we bring as a group, ourselves under that word, and pray that you would instruct us and encourage us as we need to be. From your word today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus is not the only one or the first one in human history to claim to be God. That is not what makes him unique. Many claim to be God before Jesus. Many claim to be God after Jesus. He's not unique in that sense, just that he made a claim to deity. The Roman rulers, the Caesars of Rome, claimed to be God, as well as the pharaohs of Egypt. The pharaohs of Egypt claimed to be incarnations of different Egyptian gods, and they were worshipped and hailed by the people as gods manifested in the flesh. The Caesars of Rome, particularly late in the first century and into the second and third century, claimed to be different incarnations of different deities, and so they demanded worship from their citizens. And one of the things that led to Christians being persecuted late in the first century was their refusal to proclaim that Caesar was Lord, because Christians said Jesus is Lord. And the Caesar said, I don't like competing deities. Everybody needs to say that Caesar is Lord. And Christians would not bow down to Caesar. They wouldn't hail Caesar as Lord. They didn't worship Caesar as God. And so they were persecuted. And Christians were actually called atheists, ironically, because they wouldn't worship the gods of Rome. And so they were labeled as atheists and slandered. And late in the first century, That was one of the things that inevitably led to their persecution and the execution of so many Christians that they would not worship Caesars as gods. And then you have men even in our own time like Reverend Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Unification Church, also known as the Moonies, who claimed to be an incarnation of Jesus. In fact, he called himself the Lord of the Second Advent and made a claim to deity. And you can put in Reverend Sun Myung Moon's... I can't can't say that fast once, let alone three times... You can put in his camp, his category, all of the other ilk of egomaniacal, messianic wannabes who claim to be God and have made claims to deity since Jesus was here. Some have claimed to be the second incarnation of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus, like the man down in Florida or Texas or somewhere down south in the, um, you wouldn't call it the Bible Belt, would you? You'd call it the sort of the nut belt down there where the... He claimed to be the second incarnation of Jesus, uh, Jose, Jesus, Miguel, Ed, do you know the man? 
Miranda was his name, and he, he claimed to be an incarnation of Jesus, or the second coming of Jesus. So Jesus is not unique in that he claimed to be deity. So what is it that makes Jesus unique among all who have claimed to be God? Why, why do we worship him and not reverence some young moon? Why do we worship Jesus and not Jose, Jesus, Miranda, whatever his name was, or any of the other frauds? What makes Jesus unique is not that he claimed to be God, but that he proved he was God. That's what makes Jesus unique. According to eyewitnesses and historians and people who were there, who knew the people and everybody around that time period, Jesus was born of a virgin unlike anybody else. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, so much so that his critics and his um, his haters, those hostile to him, had to fabricate charges against him to get him killed because they could not accuse him of any legitimate sin. And even though for his entire lifespan they accused him of violating the Sabbath, when it came right down to it, they could not prove that he had ever violated the Sabbath. And they didn't even charge him with that. They charged him with blasphemy, saying that he claimed to be the Son of God. And if he claimed to be the Son of God, then he was claiming to be God, and that's why they crucified him. He healed the sick, and he raised the dead, and he made the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and the mute to speak, and the deaf to hear. And he rose others from the grave, and eventually he himself resurrected from the grave, And so Paul says in Romans 1, because of that, Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. And he ascended back into heaven. He has offered to us more than ample proof to justify our belief in Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God in human flesh. So Jesus is not unique in claiming to be deity. He is unique in that he proved himself to be deity by all of the deeds that he did and all of the witnesses and testimony and everything that surrounded him, we are more than justified in placing our faith in this one who claimed to be the Lord of life and claimed to be able to raise us even from the dead. Any unbiased reader of John chapter 5 will very quickly be sort of overawed by the claims that Jesus makes in that passage in the first half of what we are calling the Divine Son Discourse, verses 19 through 30. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have authority over the Sabbath. He claimed to do all of the works of the Father. He claimed to that all of the works that he did were in fact the Father's works. He claimed the ability to raise anybody he wants to spiritual life. He claimed to be the one who will judge all men. He claimed to be the one who one day will say the word and all men will be resurrected in physical bodies and will stand before him. He claimed to be the one who would resurrect all of humanity and divide them into two categories, the just and the unjust, the saved and the unsaved, those resurrected to life and those resurrected to eternal judgment. Those were the magnificent claims and he had authority to execute judgment on every human being because he is the Son of Man. And that he could not do anything of his own initiative but only those things that the Father allowed him to do and that the Father showed him to do and gave him the power to do. And he claimed that equality and that unity with God the Father. Those are extraordinary claims. Now listen, if those claims are not true, then Jesus Christ is the most despicable deceiver, liar, who has ever lived, or he is the most pitiable, egomaniacal maniac that has ever lived. If those claims are not true, he falls into one of those two categories. So Jesus knew that when he laid out those claims in the beginning of this discourse in John 5, that he was speaking to a hostile audience. Those who, it says in verse 18, were seeking to kill him because they said he broke the Sabbath, even though he didn't. And so he's speaking to a hostile audience, and he knows He knows that he is not going to be able to simply lay out the claims, that he's going to have to go beyond that, do more than that. He's speaking to a hostile audience that will not in a million years believe anything he has said, 
Because in their mind, he is a lawbreaker. He has just violated the law of God by healing the man on the Sabbath. There's no way they're going to believe what he says about himself. So Jesus, in John 5, then brings out witnesses to testify on his behalf. And he calls, as it were, his witnesses to the witness stand. And he gives them more than ample proof. From the testimony of these four witnesses that fill up the last half of John 5, these four witnesses, more than ample proof to demonstrate that he is who he claimed to be and that everything he has claimed is in fact true. But what we are going to find in the Gospel of John is this. No amount of evidence and no type of evidence is sufficient to convince these men that he is who he claimed to be. No amount of evidence and no type of evidence is sufficient to convince these men that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And we're going to see that all the way through the Gospel of John. No matter what evidence is in front of them, they will deny it and they resist it. Because unbelief, at the end of the day, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. Listen to that carefully. Unbelief in man is never due to a lack of evidence. Never. Men have more than ample evidence. The problem is with what men do with the evidence. What do we do with the evidence? We suppress it in unbelief and in unrighteousness. We know who God is from creation. We know the attributes, the unseen attributes of God from the visible things that have been created. We are able to deduce the type of God that created all of this and that there is a creator. And we are given more than enough evidence to, ju- to condemn us on the day of judgment. But man takes that evidence and because he wants to live an unrighteous life, he suppresses it. He pushes it down in unrighteousness so that he can live however he wants. Unbelief is never, never, and I don't care who you've run into, and I don't care who you've talked to, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. You know what it's due to? A love of darkness. That's why men do not come to the light. That's why men do not believe the truth. It is because because they love their darkness, and they love the deeds of darkness, that they suppress the truth and the light and unrighteousness. Unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence. It is due to a love of darkness in every single situation. Unbelief is a love of darkness. So Jesus makes the claims, and he's going to offer the proof, and then that brings us to verse 31, which we're going to pick it up today. We've looked all the way through the end of verse 30, and I told you last week there is a division between verse 30 and verse 31. From 19 to 30, the first half of this divine son discourse, Jesus lays out his claims. Here's who I am. Here's what he is claiming. Beginning in verse 31, he calls, as it were, to the witness stand four different witnesses. And Jesus is not changing the subject. The subject matter is the same. That is, his claims to equality with and subordination to the Father. So that is his claim, and he's not changing that. He's not altering that in any way. But he knows the Jews are never going to believe that, so he calls witnesses to the witness stand. And you can see how the emphasis changes a little bit, because you will see mentioned in, I think it's 11 times in these verses, or 7 times in these verses, the word witness or testify or testimony. Look at verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies, that's the third time, of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You sent to John and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. Look at verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, and you do not believe him, believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's these that testify of me. So that's 11 different references to testify, to testimony, and to testifiers or witnesses. 
And you will notice that John brings out four witnesses. We're going to look at the first today, John the Baptist, in verses 33 through 35. And and trust me, we will get to John the Baptist. But Jesus calls out four witnesses, four testifiers, to bear testimony to him. The first one is John the Baptist, 33 to 35. The second one is the works that he did, verse 36. or Yeah, verse 36. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. The very works that I do, these testify about me. So John first, and then the works that Jesus did, that is his miracles and his deeds, they bear witness to who he is. The third witness or testifier is in verse 37 and 38, and that's the Father. So you have the John the Baptist and the works that he did and the Father, and the fourth one is the Word of God or Scripture in verses 39 through verse 47. So four witnesses compile this last half of the the chapter. John the Baptist, the works that Jesus did, the Father's testimony, and the Word of God. And some people divide the Word of God into two because Jesus mentions the Scriptures and then he mentions Moses. But how did Moses testify of Jesus? He wrote down. And what did he write? We call that Scripture. So I'm kind of lumping Moses in as sort of one example of all of the Scriptural testimony. So we have John the Baptist, the works that Jesus did, the Father's testimony, and then the witness of Scripture itself. Four witnesses And we will look at the first one today, which is John the Baptist. You ready to go? That's the introduction. Let's begin with the introduction to the testimony that John is going to give, or Jesus is going to um, reference, which is John the Baptist. The introduction to the testimony, verses 31 and 32. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying? If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Is Jesus overturning everything he has said thus far? That's Maybe as we've read over that a few times in the last few weeks, you've kind of asked yourself, what is Jesus saying there? My testimony is not true. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. That would make it what? False. And if it's false, then it would be a, a lie. That would make Jesus a liar? Well, I can tell you what Jesus is not saying. First of all, he's not saying, disregard everything I've just told you. I know I've claimed to be the one who will raise all men and judge all men and equal with the Father, subordinate to the Father. Everything I do is the Father's. Total equality with the Father and authority over the Sabbath, authority over salvation, authority over all things. Disregard all of that. None of it's true. That's not what he's saying. Nor is Jesus saying that everything he has just said is in any way suspect or subject to criticism or doubt. He's not doing that. What is it that Jesus is saying? I think there's one of two ways, and maybe both of these things are behind the statement. The first one is very easy to understand, and we can kind of readily see it. The second one is not so easy to understand or really easy to explain, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So let's deal with the easy one first, because I like doing easy things first. Because, And the reason I like doing easy things first is because then sometimes I can end up putting off the hard things. So let's deal with the easy one first. The easy one is this. It is probable or possible that what Jesus is saying is, He is describing the Pharisee's perspective on what he has just said. I have made all of these claims, and he knows their hearts, he knows what they're thinking, and he knows that according to the society of the day, according to the law, and according to the Pharisee's way of thinking, if Jesus testifies of these things about himself, they would reject it because it came from him. So Jesus is giving their perspective on his testimony and saying, Because I have said these things of myself, you are saying in your mind, my testimony is not true. Because in the society of the day, in that culture, testimony given by an individual of themselves was never regarded, taken face at face value as true. It was never just assumed to be true. If somebody else came and testified of you, that would be accepted as true. It would be accepted as 
as authentic and genuine and trustworthy. But if you testified about yourself, they would disregard that. People didn't testify about themselves. In a court of law, you didn't want to be up there just my word against his word. You wanted to have witnesses. And that principle came from Deuteronomy 19, where it said that when adjudicating a a crime or an issue in the courts of Israel, you couldn't convict somebody unless there were two or three eyewitnesses to the to the infraction, to the crime. And the reason being is they didn't want to convict innocent people. And if you just had his word against this guy's word, and it was each word against another, then there, there was no trial. There was nothing to adjudicate. They wouldn't convict somebody of a crime unless there were witnesses. Well, in the context, that dealt with adjudicating a capital crime or a capital offense that would require the death penalty. In in the culture at large, it was just kind of taken as a principle that, look, if something is true about an individual, other people would be able to line up to say this is true about this individual. And so what Jesus is doing is he's referencing a cultural standard. He's referencing a judicial, a Jewish, juris, uh, a judicial standard. That's the word. Jurisprudence. That's the word I was going to use. Never go for the longer word when you can select a shorter one. He was going for a, jur, uh, a judicial standard, referencing a judicial standard to tell them, I understand already what you're thinking about what I've said. You think that because I have said it, that it can't possibly be true. So he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. If I were to get up here and say to you, Joe Montana is the best quarterback who's ever played the game. What do you think in your head? Well, of course you're saying that. You're biased. You're a 49ers fan. Of course you think that. You don't take nobody else is even in the category with Joe Montana as far as you're concerned because you've said it. It's not necessarily true. That's the way they're looking at it. That's what Jesus is referencing. Now there's a second way of possibly understanding Jesus' word. This is where I, I lean to. Not because it's the most complicated understanding of it, but its um, I think that this really brings out the essence of the claim that he's making, the gravity of the claim. You have to consider the nature of the claim that Jesus is making. What, is, what has he just claimed? He has just claimed to be God in human flesh. And what he is saying to them is this. If what I have said to be true is indeed true of me, you will not have to take it on my testimony alone. Because everything in the universe, all of God's revelation, will point to this one fact. What I am saying is of such a nature, such a grave nature, it is such an enormous claim that if it is true, it doesn't depend on my testimony alone. If it is true, everything will testify to this. Everything. Everything will bear witness to this. Everything the Father has said. Everything the Father has done. All of the prophets. All of the Scripture. Everything will point to this. The entire universe will bow down to bear testimony to this reality. If I am God in human flesh, if I am able to raise all men, if I am who I am claiming to be, you're not going to have to take it on my testimony alone. There will be a multitude of witnesses lining up to bear witness to this. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying. Let me give you an illustration to kind of help help you work this out. I'm going to give you two claims. Claim number one. I had grape nuts this morning for breakfast. Follow that so far? That's easy, right? Claim number two, I am God in human flesh. Now, one of those is true. Are you wondering which one it is? I hope not. One of those is true. I'm not going to tell you which one is true, but I'm just going to sort of work out this illustration. The claim I had grape nuts this morning for breakfast is a claim that I can make that you're not going to say, you know what, I'm not going to believe you unless you can line up eyewitnesses and written testimony and videotape evidence. That's the type of claim that you can simply accept at face value and believe to be true 
The world does not hang upon it. Nothing really hangs upon it. You can just accept it from me just as an ordinary claim. He had great nuts for breakfast. I don't require an extraordinary amount of proof to believe that Jim had great nuts for breakfast this morning. And by the way, I did. The other claim, I am God in human flesh, which is not true. I will say that up front because in case you happen to like to edit audio and make ringtones out of it. That claim, I am God in human flesh, is not a true claim. But if I were to make that claim, you would say, hold on a second, Jim. If that is true, the prophets must bear witness to it. The scriptures must bear witness to it. The Father must bear witness to it. There must be somebody coming to also give me evidence that this is the case. If that claim is true, it is such an enormous and substantial claim that everyone and everybody would be able to line up behind it and say, Yes, this is true. Do you understand the difference between the two claims? Now, what type of nature claim did Jesus make? The second, and what he is saying is this. If what I have said is true, you don't take it on my testimony alone. If that depends on my testimony alone and I am the only one who can bear witness to that, then my claim is false. Now, why is it that we do not worship Sun, Myung, Moon? He claims to be God. Why do we not worship him? We do not, he makes the same claim as Jesus, right? But we do not worship him because the scriptures do not bear witness to it. The Father has not testified of it. There is no prophet. There is no miracles. There is no resurrections. There is no healings. There is absolutely nothing that lends credence to that claim. And that claim is a claim of such a magnificent nature that if it were true, listen, the entire universe and every voice in it would bow down to say, that is true. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 31. So what, who is the very first witness that Jesus calls to the witness stand in verse 32? It is the Father, and he's going to return to the Father's testimony down in verse 37. Look at verse 32. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. He's not referencing John the Baptist there. He's going to introduce John the Baptist in verse 33. He's referencing there to the Father. And this verse 32 kind of gives us an indication of the role that all of these witnesses play in this whole drama of this of sort of lining up these witnesses. In one sense, all of these witnesses that Jesus gives, all four of them, come from their, their independent sources. One is a written testimony, the, the scriptures, the John the Baptist, the Father, and the works that he did are really, in one sense, independent testimonies. In another sense, all four of those testimonies really go back to the Father. Where did John, John the Baptist get his message, his ministry? Where did that come from? Was it of human making or human origin? Did he make that up himself? Or was he simply a voice, a mouthpiece for God Almighty? He was a mouthpiece for God Almighty. So whose testimony did John the Baptist render or give? It was really the testimony of the Father about the Son, right? Okay, how about the works that Jesus did? Jesus said, the works that I do, the Father gave me to do. So they were the Father's works that Jesus did. And then the Father's testimony in verses 37 and 38, the Father bared witness to the Son and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And then there is the testimony of Scriptures. And where did the Scriptures come from? Who wrote the Scriptures? Well, men wrote the Scriptures, but they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, who is God. And really, it is the Word of God and the Word of the Father in the Scriptures. So all four of these witnesses, the witness of John the Baptist and the works that Jesus did, the Father Himself and the Scriptures, all go back to one ultimate source who is the God of truth. And if the God of truth is the true God and He has borne witness to the truth, then everything He has said through all four of these witnesses is in itself true. So Jesus says, the one who testifies of Me... I know his testimony and his testimony, the Father's testimony of me is absolutely true. Who is the first witness who bore witness to the Son, really, by the Father's doing or under the power of the Father? 
It's John the Baptist, verse 33, 34, and 35. He is our first witness. Now, if you have questions about John the Baptist, you wonder, who is this crazy guy who dressed in camel's skin and ate locusts and wild honey? What was his message? Why was he baptizing? What was all of that about? Where did he come from? What was his ministry like? We covered all of that in chapters 1 and chapter 3, which we read those for the Scripture reading this morning. So I'm not going to go back and rehash all of that. I'm going to assume your understanding and your knowledge of John, and we're just going to move forward. Verse 33, Jesus said, You have sent to John. Now, when did the Pharisees send for John? Turn back real quickly to chapter 1. We're not going to go into too much detail. I just want you to see the the incident that Jesus is referring to, chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him, priests and Levites from Jerusalem, to ask him, Who are you? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, the one that God promised would come up like Moses? No, I'm not. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Why are you baptizing? Notice those three things, Elijah the prophet and Christ, all three of them were prophetic offices to the Jews. They understood that. The fact that John was a prophet, they understood that, they knew that, they believed that. The question was, which prophet exactly? Are you Elijah come back from the dead? Are you the foreshadowing of Elijah? Are you one of the Elijahs? How are you related to Elijah? Because you look and sound like Elijah and that was what was promised. Or are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Are you the one? They're asking him all of those questions. Verse 24 says, they had been sent from the Pharisees. The scribes and Levites, they came out to John, asked him these questions. And who sent them? The Pharisees sent them. Who is it that Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 5? It's the Pharisees, right? You sent to John. When did they send? They sent back in chapter 1. Jesus knew about this. Maybe he heard from it for John or he just knew it in his omniscience. Jesus knew about this. You sent to John and John bore witness to the truth. He testified to the truth. He told you what was true. I want you to park on that, on that phrase for just a second. John bore witness to the truth. I'll ask you this question. Is there any greater thing that could be said of you than that statement? That he bore witness to the truth. She bore witness to the truth. Is there anything greater that could be said of any man than this? That he simply spoke the truth about God and about God's Word and about Christ. And the one who is the truth, Christ, who is the Word incarnate, and the truth, the truth of God written in the Word, and the truth about God and the truth of the Gospel, he or she lived that, testified to it, solemnly proclaimed it, declared it. Listen, if it can honestly be said of me, at the end of my life, he bore witness to the truth, and that's the only thing written on my tombstone, that is sufficient to me, for me. That is the greatest thing that can be said of a mother, of a, of a housewife, of a pastor, a preacher, a t- Sunday school teacher, a grandma, a grandpa, a child. They bore witness to the truth, because that is what you and I are called to do, and that's what John did. Notice what Jesus points out about John is that he testified to the truth. It wasn't his popularity. Was John popular? Oh, he was enormously popular. The crowds came out in droves to see him. At one point in one of the Gospels, I think it's the Gospel of Mark, it says all of Judea came out to see him. Everybody, they just went out in the wilderness to see John the Baptist and to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. At the beginning of his ministry, he was enormously popular. But it wasn't his popularity that Jesus points to. It wasn't his quirky dress. It wasn't his odd looks. It wasn't the fact that he lived out in the wilderness. What was it that was most notable to Jesus? He testified to the truth. Because you see, John's popularity waned, and it was gone, and it vanished. But this one thing remained, he testified to the truth. When you stand before the Lord, if he says of you, he, she, you, testified to the truth. You spoke the truth. Friends, I can walk into heaven and live in in a sewer for all of eternity, if that can honestly be said of me. And I hope it can honestly be said of you. He testified to the truth. That's what makes John the Baptist a hero of the faith. 
He simply spoke the truth. He testified to the truth. Verse 34, John 5. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. Now he's pointed to John the Baptist, but then he's quick to qualify it and say it. But listen, the testimony which I receive even from John is not man's testimony. Even though it's John that spoke it, ultimately the message came from whom? It came from the Father. Verse 32, it was the Father who was testifying through John. The testimony I received is not from man. So why is it, if it's just man's testimony in one sense, why is it that Jesus points to John? Well, for one, he testified of the truth. But look at the end of verse 34. But I say these things so that you may be saved. So how is it that pointing to John, people might be saved if they simply look to John? Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 35, that day when John was walking with two of his disciples, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they heard him say that. And the next day, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of those disciples left John and they followed Jesus. So Jesus points to John because he knows if they, re- they respect him as a prophet, they revere him as a prophet, they believe that he speaks for God, he's a prophet to our generation, he's the forerunner, he's Elijah, they would never question that. If they will look to John, John will point them to Jesus, and if they are like John's other two disciples, which is Andrew and probably John, the author of this gospel, if they are like those two disciples, then having followed listened to John, they would listen and follow Jesus, and in that they might be saved. So understand my testimony is of the Father, Jesus says, and I point to John the Baptist who bore witness to the Father's testimony and you receive his testimony. If you will listen to him, he will put you on the way and he will point you to the truth. Now how did John bear witness to Jesus? He said, I am not worthy to unloose his sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. He comes down out of from heaven. He speaks the words of truth. Everything he speaks is the word of God. Everything he does is the works of God because he is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. That's all that John said. Everything Jesus has said in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30, was said already in chapter 1 and chapter 3 by John the Baptist. All of it, and just in different words. John the Baptist said the exact same thing about Jesus that Jesus is now saying about himself. And Jesus points to John and says, you regard him as a prophet, listen to him, and if you listen to him, you'll be saved. Because if they could listen to John, John would point them unfailingly and unflinchingly to Jesus, and they would have salvation for their souls. Man, I love John the Baptist. He is a great man. Look at verse 35. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in its light. I love how Jesus describes John. He testified to the truth. He spoke the truth, and he was a lamp. Now, there's a difference between the light and a lamp, right? You understand the difference? The lamp is not the light, and the light is not the lamp. John is called the lamp, a lamp, but never is he ever called the light. In fact, John, almost almost um, knowing ahead of time that he was going to write what he does here in chapter 5, says back in chapter 1, verse 6, John was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. He came to testify about the light, the light that has come into the world and gives light to all men. But John himself is not the light. He's just a lamp. Now what is it about a lamp that's characteristic of a lamp? A lamp is burned up. You have to light the lamp. You have to provide fuel for the lamp. And eventually the wick of the lamp is burned up and it's burned out. And the lamp provides temporary light for a limited time and a limited uh, space. But the light is something entirely different than the lamp. John is the lamp and Jesus is the light. And John was simply bearing witness to the light and shining the light and reflecting Jesus. And John was, just like a lamp, eventually burned up and consumed. That is why John, Jesus says in verse 36, he was a lamp. That's past tense. Implying, I think, probably indicating that by the time Jesus said this, John had already been arrested or he was probably already executed as well. Already been arrested and executed. He was that lamp. He bore witness to the light. And like a lamp, he was burned up and burned out. And now he's been snuffed out. But the light has not been. 
He was the lamp. He bore witness to the light. Verse 36, he was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Those are words of condemnation, by the way. Those are critical words. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. What should they have been willing to do? Come to the light and embrace the light and receive the light. But John, though he was popular at the beginning of his ministry, his popularity lasted about as long as it took him to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John came to do two things, to prepare the people to receive the Messiah, and then to identify the Messiah when he stepped onto the stage and was revealed. And he did that through his baptism and his preaching about repentance. He prepared the people to receive the Messiah. And when the Messiah stepped onto the stage, he said, Behold, this is the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Go follow Him. He must increase, and I must decrease. I must become nothing. The light must shine brighter, but the lamp has to burn out. And I'm, John was fine with just decreasing and becoming nothing and allowing Jesus to take the center of the stage. He indicated who that Messiah was. And almost as soon as John said, He's the one, his popularity plummeted. And within a matter of just a few months, he was arrested and eventually beheaded. So he was a light that shined, and the Pharisees and all the people and the crowds, everybody was willing to frolic, rejoice in the light. They enjoyed that. Like a crowd that gathers around a spectacle in the heat of the moment, and it's really fun and it's interesting, and we all take it in, and then when it's over, we do what? We leave. And we go back to where we came from, doing what we were doing. Like a moth that comes toward a lamp, and flutters around the lamp for a little while, and then eventually just flutters away when the lamp goes out. That is the description here, the idea here behind that verse. That's what the people did. They came and John was popular. He was a spectacle. He was a light. They came and for a while they were willing to rejoice in it. They take it in. They enjoy it. They frolic in it. It's the talk of the town. It's the big thing. It seems like he's got a big following. And then eventually the light goes out, and everybody just goes back to what? The darkness. The darkness. That's the condemnation. The darkness. They came to the light. People who live in darkness are willing to be drawn to the light for a period of time, but they do not want to embrace the light. They do not want to receive the light. They do not want to stand in the shining of that light. You know what our problem is? And this happens with Christians as well. One of our problems is that we we want just enough light to feel enlightened, but not enough light to change us. We want just enough light to feel like we're in it, but not enough light to actually purge the darkness that is in us. And that is why most people stand at arm's length away from sources of light. And that would explain all of the shallow preaching, shallow reading, shallow writing, shallow Bible studies, shallow church, everything that goes on all around our nation, because people will only stand so much light, and they will frolic for a time in some degree of light, But they really love their darkness. And as soon as the light becomes too intense, they will run for darkness because they love that and they hate the light. Or they will frolic for a while as long as they're in the light enough that they feel enlightened, they feel like they're in it, but they're not actually in it. They're still in the darkness. This is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And Jesus reminds them of that. You were willing to rejoice for a little while in His light. In other words... You heard what he said. You acknowledged that he was a prophet from God, and then you summarily rejected him. Nope. We believe he's a prophet. We believe he speaks from God, but we don't like his message. That's the condemnation. That's what they did with John. So that's our first witness, John the Baptist. He testified to the truth. He did it unfailingly. He did it unflinchingly. He did a great job of it. He was willing to decrease while Jesus increased around him. He bore witness to the light. 
People came to it. They were drawn to it, but eventually they rejected him. They rejected the first witness, which is the father's testimony through John the Baptist of the son. And we will look at the second witness, maybe the third as well, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we rejoice in its teachings and in its truth and how it all comes together and fits together. We thank you again, O God, that you have brought the light into the world and then you have drawn us to that light and changed our hearts and changed us by that light. We pray that we may never be among those who want only enough light to be uh, rejoice in, but never enough to change us. We pray that you would change us from the inside out, conform us to the image of your Son, and give us grace, O God, to believe those things that you have said, to take you at your word, and to see around us the magnificent evidence that Jesus Christ is our God in human flesh, worthy of our worship and our adoration, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.